Father, thank you for the good weather change. It's nice and cool. We, we know, Father, that in Texas it's always a long summer. Thank you for giving us the cool weather of the fall. You tell us in Ecclesiastes that as the seasons turn, we see evidence that, Father, you are in control. You are faithful. You are keeping things regulated and on a proper course until the day that you bring it to a close. And your faithfulness, Father, is such a blessing. Nowhere else, nowhere better, Father, do we see your faithfulness than in your word, where you give a promise and you keep it, where you show us what you will do, and then when you do it, Father, you remind us that you told us beforehand. We see you making all things work out to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And even in a place like Corinth, where there was so much at error, Father, so much sin, so much immaturity in the faith, And yet it's still remarkable, Father, that a man like Paul could step into that world and bring such great revival. And then as he taught, Father, bring them to maturity. Let us take from this lesson this morning, Father, how we might see your faithfulness, see your work in miraculous ways in our life. And also, Father, see the need to mature and see opportunities where we can do that as we respond to what you give us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to begin again in chapter 4, at about verse 11. And as we open today in the text, I want to ask a question. What is our responsibility to the leaders over us in ministry? How do we respond to their authority? Did the men who lead us in ministry arrive at their positions of authority as a result of the consent of the governed? Or did they arrive there through the agency of higher authority? Paul, in the letter that we've been studying, has been speaking sternly with a church in a Greek city of Corinth. And he's been speaking to them regarding their immaturity in the faith. And as we've moved into chapter 4, we've noticed his critiques have really begun to sting in the way he's called them out for one thing or another. He's called them arrogant at times. He's called them prideful. He's implied that they're foolish in the way they're behaving and thinking. He's even gone so far as to mock them thinking themselves superior to apostles. And he's just getting started. We're just in chapter 4. It's going to get worse. As we get into chapter 5, Paul's going to begin to address very specific situations that he's heard about through the delegation led by Chloe, who's come to him to report on all that's going wrong in the church in Corinth. And many of the commands that he's going to give this church as a result of what he's heard are going to make demands on them, and then he's going to offer correction, and he's going to call them out for what they're doing wrong. Paul's going to place obligations on them. He's going to expect them to change their behavior. He's going to challenge their thinking. He's even going to name names. Paul's words were no less offensive in their day than those same words would be if they were offered to us today. Imagine having your sinful behavior called out by a church leader publicly among your brothers and sisters. Or imagine being embroiled with other members of the church in some kind of fierce dispute over church practice. And then an authority like Paul were to write a letter to the church and he were to side with the others against you publicly. How would you respond to such a moment? How would we respond? Would we fight back? Would we pout? Would we run away? Or would we submit to Paul's authority? The answer kind of depends on how you view Paul, doesn't it? How you view his authority? 
I mean, if you see him as a man sent by the Lord, speaking with the authority of the Lord, that's going to give you a different response than if you think of him as nothing more than your peer in the church, just another believer who happens to have another opinion, just like everyone else. And you clearly would value your own opinion over his. You see, it depends on how you view church authority and church leaders as to how you respond to their correction when it comes. That was the situation Paul faced in Corinth. Only his situation is even more challenging than the one I just proposed because he was physically separated from this church. He's writing to impose his authority upon them from a distance. He can't be there in person. He has to choose his words carefully because he can't retort to anybody's argument in the moment. And yet, knowing all of that, Paul doesn't tiptoe. He shows real courage in what he's willing to say, knowing that it's going to sting when it's heard. And so as we study Paul's response to their rebellion, I want you to consider your own responsibility to the leaders that God appoints over you so that we might learn a lesson in the course of seeing Paul deal with this church. I'm going to start a few verses back from the last time we studied back in verse 11. It'll help us establish context. And in this moment, Paul is concluding his reminder that godly servants often experience lives of sacrifice And they have needs. And these are all things that God brings about according to his sovereign grace and will. Look what Paul says in verses 11 through 13. He reminds the church of his own situation again. And he says in verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So Paul says to the church in Corinth that even as he sits writing this letter, he is hungry and he is thirsty. Meanwhile, the church in Corinth sat in comfort, while Paul, sitting in Ephesus, is poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. Now, he lived a life that you and I would consider the epitome of want, the epitome of poverty, of weakness, of shame. Was that the consequence of laziness? How do you explain that situation in Paul's case? He didn't work hard enough to support himself? Was it that he simply didn't choose a better standard of living, that he wanted to look pious, he wanted to look poor? What explains it? Well, he says he toiled. The Greek word there is very specific. It means someone working so hard and so diligently and so long that they actually grow weary and weak from that work. It's that kind of work to toil, in other words. So Paul says, I am working tirelessly. I can't work any more than I'm working. I've even reached the point of weariness from my work. Now, what was Paul's work? Well, at the very least, of course, it's working for the sake of the gospel, the sake of the church. But we also know from his letter to the church in Thessalonica that Paul would support himself quite often with his trade, which was making tents, sewing tents. So Paul worked tirelessly. His situation was not the result of laziness. His situation was the direct result of serving Christ and the gospel. Paul is giving us an important spiritual principle here. This is something we need to learn right now out of the text of Scripture. There is a principle or a law, if you will, spiritually. And here's what that principle is. The more we serve the Lord, the more we come to reflect Christ in our words and in our actions because of the work of the Spirit in us. And the more we become like Christ in our words and in our deeds, 
the more we can expect to receive the same kind of experiences that Christ himself received. The more you look like him, the more you will be treated like he was treated. The Lord himself explained this principle when he taught the disciples. In John's gospel, John 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So the more diligently that we seek to serve the Lord, the more we will become like him, which is the outcome of service to the Lord. It's maturity in our faith. But then we also know the more we become like him, the more the world will treat us like they treated him. What he's saying to them is, when you look at me, you look at the natural result of spiritual maturity. Paul's hard work didn't arrive at wealth because he was working hard for the Lord in spiritual matters. And there was a real practical consequence of this, too, by the way. In Paul's day, artisans like Paul were under the protection and authority of guilds. In Roman society, they were working guilds. A guild might be compared today to a union. If you were not part of the guild, you found it very hard to get work in your particular field of artisanship. And these guilds had some very particular rules. And among these rules would include the requirement that you would participate in temple sacrifices, worshiping the pagan gods, because there was always a patron god for the guild. But if you refused to be a part of that then you were not allowed in the guild. And if you were not in the guild, you could not get work very easily. And so Paul, in his lifestyle, put himself in a position where he could not earn a living easily without compromising his faith. And then on top of that, of course, he divided his labors between earning a living and serving the Lord. All of that just meant that no matter how hard he worked, there was an economic consequence for serving the Lord. If Paul suffered such things, then would we be surprised to see negative consequences for living our faith and proclaiming the gospel today? Should that surprise us? We're shocked when somebody is upset at us for preaching the gospel. We're disturbed that our work in supporting Christ might come into conflict with our employment or with our education or with some other association we have in life. And we're suddenly thrown up in this dilemma of, well, how do I reconcile these two? How can I change what I'm doing so that I'm not going to be rejected at work or at school? How do I make sure that my preaching of the gospel doesn't offend? Folks, you cannot reconcile those two. What does light and darkness have in common? You will be persecuted if you live your faith. That's okay. You will suffer economic consequences. That's okay. You will lose friendships in some cases. That's all right. Why? Because it's the natural consequence. It is the spiritual principle Christ gave us. If they hated him, they will hate you if you look like him. If they persecuted him, they will persecute you if you sound like him. Now, do we seek it? Do we want to have conflict? Do we want people to turn away from the message? No, of course not. Jesus didn't want his message to be rejected either, but he understood that it would be. Didn't stop him from preaching it. But he didn't compromise. What Paul says is, if you suffer these things, it's okay. You cannot let the penalty that comes from living a Christ-like life cause us to question our commitment to serving the Lord. We simply understand that's the natural consequence. It's the enemy's effort to slow down the movement of the gospel. 
Remember that our reward in heaven will be great. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we hear Paul listing out all of his difficulties, the first thing to remember is it is because it is the natural consequence of living your faith. If it happened to Christ, then it would happen to Paul. And if it happened to Paul, it will happen to us. A rule of thumb I like to use for myself, and I suggest it might be useful for for you as well. A rule of thumb is if you are seeing absolutely no persecution whatsoever for your faith, no economic impact, no friendships, no families broken, no pushback from anywhere in your life, you are not reflecting Christ. The principle works both ways. It's a spiritual truth. You have to be cutting corners. You have to be rounding off the edges. You have to be compromising. You have to be quiet when you should have spoken up. You have to be ignoring opportunities when they come your way. You have to. Because if you're not, you're going to ruffle feathers. And some of those feathers will be ruffled to the point that they drop to their knees and come to faith in the gospel. Not all of them, but some of them. And Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, if we turn away to every single one of those opportunities, we will see less persecution here, yes, but we'll see less reward in the kingdom as well. And when we all arrive in that place, we will all be saying, why was I not more outspoken for the gospel with the days that God gave me? That's the first thing we understand from Paul's situation. But the second thing is that Paul's situation reflects that he put a higher priority on heavenly goals than he did on earthly goals. Because as I've already said, the time he spent in ministering for the sake of the gospel, it competed with his time to make tents. Tent making was a profitable business in that day. Even with the restrictions on guild membership and the like, it's likely that if Paul had put all his time and energy into making tents, he would have found a way... To make that business pay off. This is a hardworking guy. This is an industrious guy. A smart guy. He had people he could have turned to if that was his goal. But he didn't. He put all his time and effort, at least most of it, into serving Christ. And that left him poorer than he would have been otherwise. And that was the right balance. Because Paul understood that no matter how much he earned in this life, it stays here. But in serving Christ, he's earning eternal reward, which cannot be taken away, Jesus says. Paul understood that working as a tent maker was a means to an end. He needed money. He needed to be fed. He needed to be clothed and so on. But he only needed that sufficient to allow him to then go off and work in ministry and not be starving to death and not be naked. But other than that, he just needed what he needed so that then he could go do ministry. As the saying goes, he worked to live. He didn't live to work. Notice Paul didn't say he had nothing. He said he had needs. Especially in comparison to the affluence of Corinthian society. He had needs. But we can have enough and still have needs unmet. That is a challenging concept for Western society. I don't think many people understand that fact anymore. You can have needs. I can have needs and still have enough. We can have enough food. We can have enough clothing. We can have enough shelter to do what? To survive? Yes, but more than that, to serve God. 
Paul had needs, but the Lord had given him enough so that he could accomplish the mission God gave Paul. But he didn't go a step further. Why? Because working to give himself anything more than he needed to serve God is diversion from the mission. There's only so much time. Spend it wisely. There's a word for having enough while still having need. You know what that word is? Contentment. Contentment. That's the Bible's word. Paul knew contentment. He understood living in need, but accepting that situation as a necessary condition to serve Christ fully. He also trusted the Lord to provide what was required for him to serve in the way God had called him. So that he could go about the master's business without being preoccupied about what he wasn't earning, what he wasn't doing, what was not being achieved in his job. That's the joy of serving the Lord. I found this in my own walk. I'm not anybody's standard. I'm not setting myself up as the example. I'm simply speaking from an experience of one. I'm saying that in my own experience, I know what this feels like. I know the joy of serving the Lord, of setting your mind on things above, not things below. I understand the joy of that. I just don't always take advantage of it. But I understand the joy of it. I think before we make that shift in our thinking, we assume that it's going to require some kind of of lifelong drudgery and and sacrifice and and worry and concern. And it's just such a burden and you don't understand it if that's what you think. It doesn't work that way. The Lord doesn't leave his children feeling that way when they serve him in their whole heart. He turns that totally around. He makes the desires of your heart his desires. And then as you pursue those things, he receives glory. You receive joy and you get eternal reward. All our needs will remain. You'll just care about them a lot less. And Paul says he was reviled. He was persecuted. He was slandered. He was mistreated. Just as he asked before, did he invite that mistreatment? Was I mistreated because I treated other people negatively? And then he says, no. He says, what did I do when they insulted me? Well, instead of returning that with insult, he says, I turned the other cheek. In each case, Paul says, I did the right thing even when they did the wrong thing. In other words, there is no earthly explanation for Paul's circumstances. Hardworking people who treat other people nicely shouldn't be poor and reviled, should they? Paul said at the end there, he was considered scum. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It literally means dung, like refuse. He's been rejected by the world, he says. The only explanation is because I love and serve Christ. And now to the point of why he mentions this. And it's actually quite ironic. The Corinthian church had been holding these things against Paul. They had been pointing out that his poverty and his persecution was evidence that his teaching was wrong and that he lacked authority. His critics in Corinth were pointing to his situation, much as prosperity gospel nonsense does today, and tries to equate our earthly circumstances with God's perspective on that person. As if the poorer you are, the more unhappy God is with you. As if the more you're persecuted, the more it proves that you're on the wrong track. That is 180 degrees from the truth. Remember last time I talked about opposite world? There you go. Opposite world again. Just take what the world thinks, flip it upside down, and you're pretty close to what the Bible says. You know, authority is a funny thing. It's something we can have easily, but it's not something we can take easily. There's a story of a Department of Water Resources representative who stops at a Texas ranch to inspect that rancher's use of water. And he's talking with the old rancher over the fence, and he tells the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for your water allocation. And the old rancher says, okay, but if I'm you, I wouldn't go in that field over there. And the water representative says, mister... I have the authority of the federal government. You see this card? He pulls a card out of his wallet. He says, see this card? 
He said, this card means I can go wherever I want, whenever I want to do my job. No questions asked. No one can stop me. I have that authority. And the rancher just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, all right. Goes about his business. Meanwhile, that water representative climbs the fence and heads over to the field. After a little while, the old rancher hears this man running and screaming for his life in the middle of that field. He looks over and close behind this water representative is the rancher's bull bearing down on him. And the bull's gaining with every step, and that rep is clearly terrified. And he yells out to the rancher for help as he's running through the fence property. And the old rancher just throws down the, the shovel he was working with, and he runs over to the edge of the fence and leans over, and he says, Show him your card! Show him your card! <laughs> you can't take authority that has not been granted to you. He may have had the authority of the federal government, but he didn't have authority over the laws of nature. And... At this point, that bull was in charge, not him. If you try to take authority that you have not been given, then you're setting yourself up for a fall because sooner or later, you're going to find yourself challenged by someone or something, or like this case, the bull, that does not respect your claims to authority. And then the question becomes, do you have the power to back up your authority? When we've been given authority and that authority is challenged, it will then be necessary for us to demonstrate that our authority is actually there through the exercise of power in some form. Now, in the church, God grants a measure of authority to individuals in different places, in different roles. He grants authority for parents over their children, for example. He grants authority to husbands over their wives within the context of marriage. He grants the authority of teachers over their students. He grants authority to elders over the flock. And in Paul's day, the Lord had apostles... And those apostles have been granted authority to found the church, to establish the doctrines and the practices and to enforce them. And in each case, those who have the authority that God has given them have the power to demonstrate that authority also. What is our power today? How would an elder, for example, demonstrate their power to back up their authority? Well, it is the word of God. The word of God is the power to back up the authority, because it declares by God's authority what these relationships are and what their limits are, what their purposes are. So if we go against any of these sources of authority, like if a child rebels, the parent has obvious physical authority or legal authority, but spiritually their authority comes first and foremost out of the word of God and God's declaration that this is how it is to be. Now, if you choose to rebel against that power and against that authority, you can do so to a measure for some period of time until when? Until the one who has set these things in place calls you to account. And all of us will stand before the Lord in judgment one day. All of us will give an account. Unbelievers stand before him for a judgment that leads into eternal separation, into damnation. Those who are believers also, though, stand for a judgment which also has a consequence. And if we are determined to buck authority where it has been established by God's word, sooner or later we meet God. And when we do, he will hold us accountable because he is a perfect and righteous judge. He never makes the wrong judgment. He does not make exceptions to his rules. So we need to concern ourselves with authority and with our heart attitude concerning that authority. Now, in the case of the apostles, the Lord granted them Not only the authority, but some unique power, things that would help make efficient the growth of the church and make it healthy. 
Apostles were appointed to bring this new message. In fact, the word apostle just means one sent with a message. Apostles were sent out with this message to a people, to the world, to the Greek society of the world, who were not receptive to it, who had never heard of it, hadn't heard of the Messiah. They didn't know anything about the Jewish history and the prophets and the law. It was completely new to them. And here comes this man, a Jew, Paul, into a city like Corinth. He's the last guy any of them would care anything about. And yet, by his preaching of the word, a church is established. That is in itself evidence of God's power. But then on top of that, we know that the apostles had very unique spiritual gifts, powers to do miracles that the average Christian does not get, so that they could back up their word, so that they had have the ability to quiet dissenters who opposed them or any who challenged their authority. And you may remember one particular case in Acts chapter 5, perhaps the most memorable example of the apostles using their power to enforce their teaching. It comes at the very beginning of that chapter. Let me just read you the first ten verses of that chapter, just so you might have a clear memory of what happened. Verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Let me pause there to make sure you understand what's happened. This couple sold their property and then claimed they were giving the full price of what they sold it for to the church. But they lied. They kept some of it for themselves. And Peter knew that because God had revealed it to him. And then Peter confronts the man and says, you know what? You didn't have to give us all of it. You could have offered to just give us half in the first place. You wanted the impression to be that you were so generous that you would be willing to give up everything to the church. You wanted that accolade, but you weren't willing to actually do it. So you lied about what you were doing. You held on to some of the money while claiming to have given it all. But Peter says, you didn't just lie to me. You lied to God. By virtue of lying to a representative of God, the authority vested in this man was God's authority. By lying to him, they were in effect lying to God because they were lying to the one God had sent to represent him in that church. And then the next thing that happens in verse 5, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all who had heard it. The young men got up and covered him and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So Sapphira doesn't know her husband's dead. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, maybe we should say, thankfully, it doesn't work that way anymore. This ability on Peter's part to declare someone dead and by his word alone, they fall to the ground. Friends, that's not a common ability within the church. (laughs) Let's just state the obvious, right? These are apostolic gifts, uniquely bestowed upon men whom God gave a very unique mission. And their ability to wield these powers was in keeping with that mission. 
And we can see the effect it had on the church. Luke writes in Acts 5 that the fear of God and the fear of the apostles' authority fell upon the church. Exactly the purpose of this. That was healthy fear. And you know what it promoted? Obedience to God and obedience to the apostles, which is a good thing. So now, Paul has said, my lifestyle is proof that I'm doing the right thing, not evidence that I'm doing the wrong thing. And now Paul says, in that way, you must consider me your authority. Look what he says in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul starts by saying, I didn't say all these things because my intent was to embarrass you. Instead, he says, I want to admonish my beloved children. That word admonish, we need to understand. That word in Greek means to correct with instruction. Correct with instruction. Paul is both chastising them even as he teaches them. And sometimes we need to do both if we're going to get people's attention. There is a time for discipline and there is a time for teaching. And then there is a time when you need to do both at the same time or Closely linked. In this case, look why he needed to do both. You have a church that is intensely prideful, intensely arrogant. So if you're facing someone who is not in a mindset to receive instruction, then you need to correct them so that when that correction takes hold, now they'll be open to instruction. So simply educating them wasn't going to be enough. They weren't looking for education. They were looking to be validated. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be humbled. They had to have their pride set aside. They needed some time to consider his words. And then Paul could teach them. So he he does both. He admonishes them. Also, notice he calls them beloved children. I think this is important because otherwise I think our tendency is to malign Paul's motives here. Parents, how many times have you looked at your children and said, I spank you because I love you or I discipline you because I love you? And how many kids in here have heard that and don't get it? Well, of course we don't get it at first. Hebrews says that discipline does not seem joyful when we first receive it, but in time it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Of course no one likes to be disciplined. Since when is that news? The nature of it is to do something to someone they won't like. That's the whole point. And in the not liking of it, it gives us motivation to think differently about what we say or what we do or how we behave. That's the whole point. And Paul is saying to them, I didn't say these things to shame you. I said them out of love as if you were my children, speaking to them as ones who came to faith through his ministry. And so he says, in a nutshell, you've been told these things so that you might think differently and live differently according to what you learn. That's why in the church today, friends, we have both teachers and leaders, and in some cases, they're one and the same. But those two roles exist for a reason. There is a time we need to be taught, and then there will be times when we need to be corrected. When we need someone who has God-given authority, who will come to us in love, with no intent to shame, but with an intent to correct. If we're willing to accept teaching when it suits us, then we ought also to be willing to accept the correction of leaders, even if it wounds our pride, even when it challenges our ego. 
And certainly when it challenges our thinking, because after all, that's how thinking gets corrected when it's challenged. That's the primary way I think the Lord disciplines his children. He admonishes us through leaders who are called to teach and to correct. And of course, if those teachers and leaders do not reflect their own teaching, then they lose the credibility and the authority that they might otherwise have had. Paul was able to stand and say what he did to Corinth because he was Paul. And I don't just mean the man and the position. I mean the life. Because he lived what he said. Notice in verse 15, Paul says that we might have countless teachers. There are any number of people who might come into our lives to teach us and educate us. But we have a limited number of authority figures. Paul says he was their father in the faith, reflecting the beginning of the church through his work. And that's no small matter. It proves that God wanted to work through Paul to bring them the the faith that they had. So that says something about Paul's relationship with the Lord, that the Lord was working through Paul. We have to respect that. And the church could clearly see that. And in our walk, and in our church, or in our circle of friends, whoever they may be, you and I have a limited number of authority figures. If we buck that authority, if we turn away from their opinions and their attitudes, if we minimize their influence in our life, we're turning away from the handful of people God has given us to keep us on the straight and narrow, to make sure that we arrive at the best possible place at the day of our judgment. If we turn away from those people, where will we find the next? Authority figures do not come easily. Strangers cannot become authority figures. Casual acquaintances cannot be authority figures. The pastor you listen to on the radio or on the Internet cannot be your authority figure from a distance. There's only so many options for that. We have to respect the ones God has brought into our life. Our leaders in the church exist for the same purpose that Paul and Timothy existed in their day, albeit at a very different level. We're not calling all men apostles. I certainly would never use that term for anyone today. But we're equating them in in the sense of their role, of their purpose in the church. There are three things leaders are called to do. They are called to teach so that we would have instruction on how to follow Christ. They are called to model that obedience through their life. As Paul says, imitate me. And then finally, they hold positions of authority to watch over our souls by admonishing us to do what we know we are to do. We cannot reject that third role. I know a lot of people who will accept the first two, but they will not give room for the third in their life. It's very popular today in Western society to be independent, self-directed, self-reliant and completely without any authority over us, wherever we can make that be. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13. He says in verse seven, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Then he jumps down to verse 17 and he says, obey your leaders And submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Leaders aren't perfect. They're not always going to have the right perspective. They don't always have the best ideas. But we've got to be careful before we challenge their authority, because here's the dilemma. When you think they're wrong and you're right, might be the time when it's the other way around. And you need to be open to what God may be speaking to you about. Let's finish what Paul says in this chapter. He says in verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul says the Corinthian church was showing evidence of arrogance. Their arrogance was in their unwillingness to accept Paul's instruction. 
that Paul be seen as a man who had no authority because of his circumstances. That's arrogance. It's acting as if, Paul says, as if I am not coming to you. I've used this example so often in here, you already know it, of the children who are left home for a while by the parents who have to go out. And if that child acts as if the parent's never going to come back, then they'll do whatever they want. On the other hand, if they live with an awareness that the parents are coming back, they'd be foolish to do whatever they want because they know there's an accounting coming in the very near future. Paul says, you're acting like I'm not coming back. So he corrects that assumption. He says, you know what? I am coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to come with power, the power God has given me through the word, the power he's given me in my spiritual gifts. And when that day comes, I'll be able to remind you that it's not about words. It's about power. Anyone can say what they want, but only some people have the authority to back it up. The kingdom is a kingdom of people, of believers, but it does not exist in mere words. We do not have a church on earth. We do not have Oak Hill Bible Church because somebody was eloquent with a bunch of fancy words and it persuaded a bunch of people to show up in this building once a week. That's not the evidence of it. The Bible says that the church, the kingdom of God as it exists now, is built with real spiritual power, the power of Christ's spirit working in the hearts of men. It binds us together and it puts men and women in positions of authority in different places to lead us. It gives us spiritual gifts like it gave to Paul and it asks us to obey To recognize that authority. That's the kind of church we want, isn't it? To object to those things is arrogance. And Hebrews says it would not be profitable for us. The irony is that while we think we're gaining what we want, we're losing something in eternity if we buck authority. Finally, Paul reminds Corinth, he has authority, he has power, and he's willing to do it. It's up to them. Do they invite him back in a spirit of gentleness and love, or do they invite him back with the rod? Because Paul's saying one way or the other, I'm going to make sure this church does the right thing. I have a saying I I used to use my children when they were younger, and you may have heard this too. When they would misbehave and it came time to discipline them, and they were obviously looking for grace, for mercy. There is a time for discipline. And one of the things I used to tell my kids is, you've done the wrong thing. Don't expect me to respond by doing the wrong thing also. And the wrong thing would be to not punish you. It would be to let this go without discipline. The right thing is to discipline you. You can't expect the Lord to do the wrong thing because you've done the wrong thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the reminder that as Paul taught this church, we have authority just as they did. No one's perfect, Father. Our leaders are not perfect. Those who teach us are not perfect. But you are, Father. And by your spirit, you have determined who to raise up. You've given authority by your word and you've Let us with men and women who are doing their best at times and in every way to exercise that authority. Father, give us a heart to have patience and respect, a willingness to submit, and a loving heart, Father, to come alongside and aid any in in leadership who God may put in our path so that they might be better at their job and we might profit more as a result. Above all, Father, give us the courage to go out and to suffer what comes with living a Christ-like life. Don't let us shrink back from that, Father, wishing to receive the world's approval. Let us always work for yours and for the rewards you offer. And, Father, as we leave this place, let us be men and women of love, of light, and uh, with a heart, Father, to work hard, to be tireless in our efforts for the gospel. And bring us back next week, if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.